Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio. And how the tech are you? We are continuing our series of episodes about Johnny Ive, the famous tech designer, industrial designer, who, under the guidance and support of Steve Jobs, was instrumental in changing Apple from a company that was on the brink of bankruptcy into a company that became a household name in electronics. Now, if this is your first time hearing about all this, you should look at the episodes I published last Monday and Wednesday first because I've already covered a lot of ground and we're just going to pick up from there. Now, I ended the last episode a little rushed with a summary of Ive's work on the iPod. And as I mentioned in that episode, the iPod would go on to become an iconic piece of technology that would extend Apple's influence beyond the faithful customers who had been Apple's bread and butter for so many years. You know, you got to keep in mind that Apple was really facing a huge uphill battle. While the iMac was a, a big hit, and you know, especially in like the educational sector, 
the truth of the matter was, is that Windows PCs still had most of the market share. Like Mac had only carved out a tiny little slice of the market share in comparison. So while at, while the iMac really helped Apple out and, and helped it, you know, reel back from falling over the precipice, it was this expansion into electronics that would really change Apple's fate. So the iPod would ultimately reach folks who had never owned any other Apple product, but it took a while. And one reason for that had nothing to do with the industrial design of the iPod, but rather the lack of compatibility with non-Apple computers. So the original iPod, the first generation, required a Macintosh in order to synchronize the iPod with the user's music collection, which was on iTunes. Now, also at this point in Apple's history, you could not buy digital music off of iTunes. There was no music store. Instead, you would take your CD collection, because that's what we used to keep music on, kids, and you would insert CD by CD, you would rip music from the CD into iTunes, then you could transfer the music from your iTunes library to your iPod using a physical cable, which is also how you would charge the iPod. Uh, it was a FireWire cable back in the day, so this was a point where Apple was really keeping everything within its own ecosystem for the most part. Now, the reason you couldn't buy digital music off iTunes uh, at, uh, in those early days, that had a lot to do with the music industry, not with Apple. So this was a transitional phase where the record labels held most of the leverage, though sales of CDs and other media were starting to flag. And it wouldn't take very long for Apple to switch that around and get the upper hand over the music industry. It was not instantaneous, and it did progress in phases, but it totally happened. One other thing I wanted to mention before we move on is that last year, this past year, 2021, for those of y'all listening from the future, uh, that was iPod's 20th anniversary. So it had come out 20 years earlier. And this year, in 2022, Apple finally discontinued all iPod models. But anyway, last year, uh, 2021, a software company called Panic actually showed off a prototype of the iPod. And it looks absolutely nothing like what Apple would ultimately launch. And that was on purpose. So this prototype iPod, it's funny to even talk about. It was enormous. It was like the size of a DVD player. And it was also pale yellow in color. Uh, it had a mechanical scroll wheel in the upper left corner of the front face of this thing. It had four physical buttons that had little labels that were taped onto the <laughs> prototype. And the label said up, down, left, and right. So there was like a physical switch for each of those. And it had the Apple logo with the word iPod underneath it in the upper right corner of the device. And according to Tony Fidel, the interior of the device was mostly empty space. It wasn't like filled with circuitry or anything. And the team who made it purposefully avoided anything that would look like what the final design was supposed to be, be like. And that was just to you know, avoid any potential leaks or anything like that. As for the real thing, Ive was inspired by a much older piece of technology, the 1958 Brown T3 radio, which was designed by an industrial designer, famous industrial designer named Dieter Rams. Ive, like Rams, believed in the mantra, less but better, meaning the design of whatever you're working on should not be burdened with flourishes and unnecessary touches. I have a feeling that Johnny Ive 
detests Baroque. <laughs> like if he walked through, say, Hearst Castle, his eyes would probably pop out of his head because it is probably the gaudiest place I've ever been to. And I've been to Pigeon Forge, y'all. Now, if you Google image search the 1958 Brown, that's B-R-A-U-N-T-3, you'll see a small radio that, when it's stood on its end, has a speaker that's at the top, and below that is a radio tuning wheel. And you'll look and you'll say, yeah, that does look a lot like an iPod, where you had the screen at the top, and then you had the little scroll wheel the circular wheel that you could, you know, physically, mechanically move in a circle with that first generation on there. You could definitely see the similarities. The T3 is larger than the iPod, but the T3's influence on Ive is unmistakable. That's not to say that Ive didn't make this design his own. He totally did. But you can see sort of the pedigree of the iPod design by comparing it to this, this old radio. Now, Johnny Ives' design of the iPod brought in a material that Apple had not really been using for its products up to that point, which was stainless steel. So the front of the iPod would be white. Uh, actually, the, the name of the color of the original iPod is Moon Gray. The back of the iPod would be stainless steel, and the company logo would be on the back of the iPod, on the steel side. Now, some questioned Ives' decisions. They thought it made more sense for Apple to put the logo on the front of the device, not on the back. But Ives didn't want the logo to intrude on the experience. And he wanted to use stainless steel partly because it would actually give the iPod some heft. It would, it would have some weight to it. And Ives was thinking that weight in the hands of the user might be associated with the work that artists were putting into their music that you were actually listening to this idea that it should be heavy. It can hold up to a thousand songs. Like it's a, it's an interesting leap there because obviously music doesn't weigh anything uh, unless you're trying to carry a musical instrument or a lot of sheet music, but you know, music doesn't weigh anything, but the idea of no, but we need this device to make it feel like it should weigh something because it's able to hold an entire library's worth of music. Well, that's what they thought back in the day. turns out that people can collect way more than a thousand songs. So that was an interesting choice. One that I, I don't, I don't know how I fall. I mean, I like the feel, the weight of that first generation iPod. I actually like the way that feels. Um, I don't necessarily associate it with the amount of work artists put into their music, but that may be a lack of imagination on my part. Now, one component that wasn't Ives' idea on that first-generation iPod was that mechanical scroll wheel, right? That circle that you could spin around to go through menus and stuff. That was actually Phil Schiller's idea. Schiller was head of marketing. Uh, he would actually step in for Steve Jobs a few times when Jobs' health was in decline. And Schiller had pitched the idea of an input device that gave physical feedback, the, the clicking of the wheel in this case, and so that element did not come straight from Johnny Ives' group. Now, like I said in the last episode, the first iPod sold well, but they it wasn't the breakout hit that later generations of the iPod would become. I mean, if Apple had stuck with the way they did the first iPod, we probably wouldn't be calling these things podcasts. We'd be calling them something else. But Apple did sell more than 100,000 units between when the first iPod came out in early to mid-November of 2001, and then the end of the year. So in, uh, you know, a little more than a month, they sold 100,000 units. That's not shabby. By January 2003, Apple had sold more than 600,000 iPods, which wasn't bad. 
but it did show how Apple's customer base at this point was still fairly limited. In fact, the company had only added support for Windows machines in August of 2002. But in 2004, things really picked up. Apple introduced the iPod Mini, which was a slimmed down version of the iPod that was available in several colors. So not just moon gray that I've really favored. In addition, the Mini was made out of anodized aluminum, giving the iPods a different feel. Uh, they, you know, the, the texture was different. And Ivan and his team had worked hard to find just the right material and colors to create a line of devices that still had the right weight and feel to them and would be inviting. And Apple's iPod sales climbed above 2 million by the end of January 2004. By the end of the year, so that was at the end of January, but by the end of the year, they went to more than 10 million units sold. That's an astronomical climb in sales, right? Like it was 2 million by the end of January, 2004, by the end of the next 10, 11 months, rather more than 10 million. Incredible. So the iPod success was huge, both for Ive as a designer and for Apple as a company. And we'll talk about what that meant for Apple when we come back from these messages. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Okay, so the iPod was a huge hit. And that huge hit was enough to really convince Steve Jobs, not that he needed much convincing anyway, but it really sealed the deal 
that his own preference, which was to put as much emphasis on design as on things like functionality, that was the way to go. That you had to have design be a prime component of any product. That it couldn't just be, what does the software do? Or how do you access it? What's the user interface? But the actual physical design of the product had to be just as important, if not more so. Now, you have to remember that back then, Apple was not the brand that it is today. The company had its rabid fans back in, you know, 2000, 2001, but they were in the minority. Apple had been the butt of jokes in the mainstream. Like people joked about how the Apple Mac was, you know, you, you don't even play games on an Apple Mac. Like there's, there's nothing to play. That wasn't true, by the way, but that was the perception. So things were starting to turn around now, right? Because the iMacs had really started to catch capture a lot of attention. They were just very fun and and lovely design. Like you wanted you wanted to have one. It looked like candy. The iPods were a huge hit. So now the general public were starting to want to get their hands on Apple products. It was it was going beyond the Apple faithful. And those attractive computers and iPods were really transforming the company. One computer that got attention and not all of it was positive was the iMac G4 computer, which was released in 2001. So same year that the iPod came out. And if you take a look at this, if you look at the iMac G4, which had a couple of different names throughout its history, you can definitely see that the evolutionary step that existed between the 1998 iMac G3 models, which were those really colorful CRT screen computer systems that were all in one computer system, and then you can also see the following step after the iMac G4, which are the more modern iMacs, which are kind of all-in-one devices where you've got a flat screen with the computer integrated right behind the flat screen and it's on a stand, right? That's been the iMacs of recent years. Well, this one, the iMac G4, is kind of in between those. Though I'd say it's more, it's closer to the more recent iMacs than the old uh, G3s. So the base of this computer was a little dome and that's where all the computer elements were, right? Like that's where the optical drive was. That's where you would plug in your peripherals. And that dome is kind of what I think of as the nod to the iMac G3 days. Now at the top of the dome was an attached arm that you could tilt kind of like a desk lamp. And on the end of that arm was the flat panel display for the computer. So it didn't have the, the computer incorporated behind the flat screen. It was instead incorporated in this little dome. So it wasn't quite the same as modern iMacs. So that's why I say it was kind of in between. And this was a bold move for the company. It differentiated Apple's computers from the beige desktops associated with Windows machines. And the company called it the new iMac at the time. Later on, they would rename it the iMac G4. The LCD display on the new iMac wasn't cheap, and so the new iMac was a pretty expensive machine, and the education sector, which again was one of Apple's really big customers, kind of lagged on adopting the iMac G4 because it was so expensive. A lot of them kept on buying the G3 until Apple stopped selling them. In 2004, Apple would unveil the iMac G5. Now, this was the first of the iMacs to incorporate the computer behind the flat display itself. And it would all be supported on an L-shaped stand that would be on your desk. Now, unlike later iMacs, which would have aluminum cases, like the most recent ones have aluminum cases, 
the iMac G5 had a, a white case. And I've insisted on that. He felt that the screen was meant to capture the user's attention. Like all their attention should be on the screen. The screen was beautiful. It was the focal point for the computer. So he wanted a, a really minimalist approach on the case so that you wouldn't, your eyes wouldn't be drawn to something else. You'd be focused on what was important. And everything else, like the keyboard and the mouse, would all be a simple white as well. And again, not to pull focus from the display. Now back to the iPod. The introduction of the iPod Nano in 2005, which would replace the Mini, would change things up again. The first generation of the Nano was available only in white or black, and it had a screen measuring just 1.8 inches on the diagonal. The second generation added a few more features, as well as some more color options. The third generation would change the form factor by having the candy bar-like dimensions of the first two generations trade-off for, I don't know, like a graham cracker kind of dimension. It was more squarish than a rectangle. Uh, so the actual physical form factor changed. And that design would flip-flop a bit between those over the following generations until Apple just plain out discontinued the Nano. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so again, it was Ive's team kind of working on different things to try and experiment with different design layouts. And sometimes they would go back to an idea that they had had before you know, refine it a bit. So it wasn't like, you know, the iPod, uh, the, uh, the, the nanos of, of, you know, 2010 looked exactly like the ones from 2007. It wasn't like that, but they did kind of experiment with those different form factors. I've also had a hand with the iPod shuffle, which didn't have a screen at all on it. So you had no screen to look at. Instead, you would load music on this device. You would play it in shuffle mode. You could play it in just, you know, regular nodes that would play in order, but typically it was shuffle mode and it would just sort of randomly shuffle out the song order for you and play whatever. And it had simple controls for advancing or going back through songs, plus volume controls and a play pause button. And that was about it. Like it had the little headphone jack and that's, you know, you didn't have much more after that. The first one looked kind of like a stick of gum. Uh, you could actually pull the end off. It was a cap for a USB that could be, you know, plugged into a computer. The second generation looked more like a stamp, like it was, you know, rectangular in, in dimension. Uh, the third generation of the shuffle would be the boldest of the designs because Ive and his team created one that lacked any physical controls other than a power control. So instead, all of the controls for changing the volume or advancing through a track, all of that moved to Apple's iPod earbuds, which I've also designed which meant that initially, at least, the third generation of the shuffle had limited functionality if you weren't using Apple's own earbuds. So you couldn't just, you know, pl plug any earphones into a shuffle of this generation uh, and be able to control it. You'd be able to listen to, to music, but you wouldn't be able to do things like change the volume. So if it was too loud or too quiet, you couldn't do anything about it. And if a song came on that you didn't want to hear, there was no way to skip it unless you were using the, uh, the Apple earbuds, which had the controls on them. Eventually, third parties would come up with their own earbuds that would have controls that were interoperable with this shuffle. But this was one of those decisions that had people kind of complaining about Apple. Apple has a reputation for uh, making moves to trap people into an ecosystem, whether it's with peripherals or with their approach to software. Um, and that, you know, customers, consumers tend to like to have a lot of options, right? Like, 
a lot of people would much prefer to be able to pair their favorite headphones with their favorite music device. But Apple was taking an approach where at least to have the ideal experience, you really need to be all in on Apple. Something that I think was really true even when Apple opened up iTunes to Windows machines. But I've complained about that too many times in the past, so I'm not going to pick that up again here. The fourth generation shuffle would actually bring back those physical controls onto the device itself, which seems to be an admission that perhaps the third generation may have gone too far. I mean, some bold moves just end up being the wrong ones, it turns out. Or at least maybe if you want to say it's not the wrong move, it might be a move that just doesn't resonate with the general public as well. And then after all that, we would have a device that really would <laughs> uh, push Apple into the next level. So to, to kind of sum up what we've been looking at so far with the Johnny Ives tenure at Apple, you know, he came in during a tumultuous time where the company was heading toward disaster. He was encouraged by Steve Jobs to help design a, a new generation of Macintosh computer that brought attention back to Apple on a level that had not been there for years, like positive attention. The company had largely been dismissed at that point. He had helped introduce a new product line with iPods, a new whole business for Apple, which when paired with iTunes and the iTunes store would end up being a lucrative business for Apple. But what would come next would really push the company into the stratosphere. We'll talk about that when we come back after these messages. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. 
Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. All right. This is where we're getting up to around 2007. And if you know Apple and you know your timelines, you know that 2007 is when we get the iPhone. And who boy. So the iPod established Apple as a household name in electronics. The iPhone would move the company into hyperspace. So when Steve Jobs unveiled the iPhone back in 2007, it took the world by storm, which was particularly remarkable because I don't know how many of you remember this, but here in the United States, when the iPhone launched, it was exclusive to AT&T. You could not have the iPhone running on any other carrier. So if you were a Sprint customer or a Verizon customer or T-Mobile customer, then you would have to switch carriers if you wanted to get an iPhone. That was a big limitation. And yet the iPhone was still a remarkable hit for Apple. And when Steve Jobs took the stage in 2007 to talk about this, to unveil it, uh, he drilled home to the audience that he was going to introduce products that represented an iPod, a mobile phone, and an internet communications device. And the implication at first was that these were three different products. But then he reveals, no, I'm talking about one thing that that happens to be all three of these. And that was the iPhone. So he gave a very long presentation about the iPhone that day. It's like a couple of hours. You can actually find it on YouTube. You can watch the whole thing if you like. And he spent some of that time to talk about the design of the phone, although it was in uh, pretty general terms. Uh, He pointed out that there were minimal physical controls on the device. There was a home button that would take you back to the home page, wherever you happen to be. There was a wake slash sleep button. So you could, you know, turn the phone on or off. There was a volume control and there was a switch to turn the phone to ring or silent mode. Uh, It also had front facing and rear facing cameras, had a back that was made out of aluminum. The front was originally going to be plastic But Steve Jobs noticed that his early model he was carrying around was starting to get scratched up. And so the team at the last minute had to change the determination to make it go to glass. The one that you'll see in the presentation that that Steve Jobs is showing off, that's the one that has a plastic face. The one that would go to market would have a glass face. Now, that design change uh, was a big one. I'll talk about it a little bit more and what the team had to do in order to make it work. It was pretty remarkable. And the design of the iPhone overall followed that less but better philosophy. So unlike other smartphones, the iPhone did not have a physical keyboard. If you look at the smartphones around 2007, you'll see that all of them pretty much have a third to about a half of the phone taken up by a display and the rest of the phone taken up by a physical keyboard with little plastic keys and some navigation buttons. And Steve Jobs hated that. He wanted to have a touchscreen device. 
And because of that, it meant that you could dedicate the entire or almost the entire front of the phone to the screen, which measured three and a half inches on the diagonal for the original iPhone. Now, above the screen was the front facing camera, the speaker for your ear, that kind of thing. Beneath the screen was the home button. And there was a fairly narrow bezel on either side of the screen. So it was a pretty simple and elegant approach to a smartphone with most of the focus going on the display, just like with the newer iMac computers that were coming out. The glass that would cover the iPhone was special. And it ended up being a special kind of glass that Corning had been working on in its R&D department. Uh, you know, because Apple was looking everywhere to find someone who could produce glass that wouldn't scratch or shatter easily. They needed something that was going to be durable, especially for a device that could, you know, on occasion, maybe slip out of your hand and hit the floor. So they looked at this special glass Corning had developed, and this was stuff that would later evolve with the uh, commercial name Gorilla Glass. That's a popular brand of glass that has scratch and shatter resistant properties. It's really cool. I once wrote an article on how Gorilla Glass works for how stuff works way back in the day. So, um, yeah, and that was great. I got to talk to people at Corning and everything to learn more about the actual engineering that was required to make this happen. Now, at the time that they were using it for the iPhone, this stuff hadn't really found its way into any consumer products. It was still kind of an R&D thing. So this is an example of how Steve Jobs and Johnny Ive would go to great lengths to make sure that their vision would be realized, even if it meant having to make use of an experimental material in order to do it. Well, I should also add that Jeff Williams played a critical part in getting the glass from Corning incorporated into the iPhone design. I know when I talk about this, it makes it sound like Johnny Ive and Steve Jobs did everything at Apple on their own and just raised it. <laughs> from the mud and put it into the heavens. That's not the case. There were clearly hundreds and thousands of people working at Apple who made these things possible. Some of them took on, you know, leadership roles. So people like Jeff Williams and Johnny Ive and Steve Jobs. Uh, but, you know, I don't ever want to take away from the fact that these things exist because of the collaboration of lots of incredibly talented people. Now, a lot of the design elements of the iPhone would obviously find their way into the iPod Touch. In fact, you know, a lot of people said the iPod Touch was really just an iPhone, only without the phone part. And the iPod Touch had also a multi-touch display, meaning that you could do multi-finger gestures on it, like pinch to zoom, that kind of stuff. But it also had a lower resolution screen than the iPhone did. So it wasn't as sharp as what you would get with the iPhone. Uh, it also lacked physical volume buttons for the first generation of the iPod Touch, which was something that irritated some reviewers and some users. Uh, you could actually use an iPod Touch as a phone if you enabled the Wi-Fi and you used apps like Skype. I actually know someone who did that for a while. My buddy Ayaz Akhtar, who, uh, who produces content for CNET, he, um, for a while, was using an iPod Touch as his primary phone. And... Uh, one of these days, I'm just going to have to have him on the show again and talk about how that worked out for him. And was it convenient or what did he like about it? Why did he hate about it? Sometimes I think having a Wi-Fi only phone would be great because anytime I'm not around Wi-Fi, I wouldn't have any notifications. <laughs> and I'm just I've I've obviously reached the age where uh, notifications are the bane of my existence and I try to avoid them at all costs. Anyway, back to Ive and Apple. You would also clearly see Johnny Ive's influence 
and the release of the iPad, which came out in 2010. And in case some of y'all didn't know, I, I usually say this whenever I talk about the iPad, so you probably have heard me say this before, even if you haven't heard the original episode. Way back in the day, I infamously dismissed the iPad when it was first coming out. I said, this is not going to work. It's going to be a flop. No one's going to want this. I could not imagine that people would flock to a tablet computer. And the reason for that was because in the past, tablets had really only found a place in niche markets. Like, you know, in the medicine field, there were places where, you know, doctors and nurses were using tablet computers but it it just never managed to take off as a mainstream product. And I was convinced that that was just, that was just going to be the case that even Apple would not be able to produce something in that form factor that would appeal to the average person. And oh, I could not have been more wrong. So I've actually provided a bit of philosophy when he talked about the iPad later on, he once said, quote, when something exceeds your ability to understand how it works, it sort of becomes magical. And that's exactly what the iPad is, end quote. Which I think of as sort of paraphrasing Arthur C. Clarke, the science fiction author. Clarke once said that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. That if the technology is advanced enough to someone not schooled in that tech, it would seem to be impossible. And you think about that, like if you were to somehow go back in time to, I don't know, the Renaissance and show off a computer, somehow get it running. I don't know how you would do it in the Renaissance, but let's say you did. Everyone would think that you were, you were, you were magical and you probably would be persecuted because that's just the way the world goes. Right. Anyway, he was more or less saying that the iPad was magical. It fell into that realm, largely because of the way that you would interact with the device. You know, you literally had to put your hands on whatever it was you were doing. And there is something to that, right? That your interaction when you're touching something directly, even if that directly is through a screen, it creates a more connected experience. You know, Steve Jobs, when he introduced the iPhone, talked about getting your hands on your music because you were physically touching your screen in order to play specific songs, as opposed to typing something out on a physical keyboard, which adds a bit of distance between you and whatever it is you want to do. It's that connection that cuts out those other input forms that could otherwise act as sort of a barrier between you and whatever it was you were doing. It's an interesting thought. I don't know how much I buy into it, but I do think there is something there. Uh, and it meant that you were going to be able to interact with stuff on a screen very much like an iPhone, but on a size at much greater scale, obviously. Now, we're going to start to to wind down here because I have one more episode in this series I want to do. And it really ties into the decline of Steve Jobs's health. Uh, his health would obviously have a huge impact on the operations at Apple and on Apple's future. Uh, he had first been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer uh, back in 2003. Uh, he underwent a surgery to remove it. And he 
mostly kept it under wraps from even his close friends at Apple until 2004 when he did send out a, a message to everyone at Apple letting them know what had been going on. And there was hope that the surgery he had undergone had had removed all the cancer and that he was cancer-free and healthy. But obviously, over the following years, uh, that would change. So in our next episode, we're going to talk about Steve Jobs and his failing health and ultimately his, his passing, how that affected Apple in general and Johnny Ive in particular, and how at least some people say that set the path for Johnny Ive ultimately to step away from the company he had fallen in love with. Um, not that it was the one and only factor that, that went into that decision, but that that was the starting point. We'll talk about that in our next episode. Hope you've been enjoying these. It's been really interesting to dive into Johnny Ive's history and his influence at Apple something that was clearly really important. And in the next episode, we'll also talk about what we might expect with Apple moving forward without Johnny Ive in it. But that's for the next episode. If you have suggestions for episode topics, well, let me know. One way to do that is to download the iHeartRadio app. It's free to download. You can navigate over to the Tech Stuff podcast page. Use that little microphone icon to leave up to 30 seconds of a voice message. Let me know what you would like me to talk about. Or you can reach out on Twitter. The handle for the show is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. 
Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.